and Sterling Fox, along with Julie Wong, joined from Toronto by Gordon Flett, who is a professor of psychology at York University and the Canada Research Chair in Personality and Health. Dr. Flett is here to talk to us today about students struggling with online learning, and there's a new study promoting adaptability as a key. And this, of course, is directed at not only the learner, but also the teacher, because our guest teaches teachers. Dr. Flett, good morning and welcome, sir. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Gordon. Let's talk about how dramatically education has changed uh, since this whole COVID pandemic began this year. First, we had to scramble. How did that go? Now that we've had a chance to look at the scramble, because we're well beyond that now, how did we do at the outset? Well, at the outset, I think there was a lot of stress and tension, and I still think people are adjusting. Uh, I hear it from my colleagues and uh, me myself. I've had my first experience with online learning, and after teaching the same course the same way for a couple of decades, and, uh, you know, uh, new challenges come up, so we're still coping with it, and of course... Everybody's saying, when when can we get back to the way it used to be? But but there's no obvious end in sight. Interesting stuff. So I, I'm glad you gave us an opportunity to explore an example. Gordon, you said you've taught the same, same course, essentially the same course, for a couple of decades. And here yes. we go with the 2020 version, and it's online. What was yes. the biggest obstacle? What was the most difficult part about reproducing that well-known uh, course sure. again. Well, my my class is a seminar class for fourth year students. I get a lot of interaction with them. The relationship component is right there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they ask for help at the break. They they talk to me about things that go well beyond what's happening in the class. And uh, you know, so so we we miss the relational part, but there's also the pragmatic part. Um, more courses, more students were over enrolled in the class and could be really, really handled according to the old framework where they would each do an in-class presentation. So online, what we've had to do is totally adjust with the help of one of my graduate students who's much more capable at this stuff than I am so that students now record their presentation. We watch it in advance, and when we get to the class session, we can focus more on discussion and issues and themes uh, because I found that the amount of time for the in-class presentation simply wouldn't work in terms of the number of students that there were. And, uh, you know, this this then means that students also have to learn how to video themselves, how to upload that, and uh, some are are more able to handle that than others. Uh, But I keep telling them, you know, I'm trying to look at it on the bright side where we've got new opportunities. I can go into some themes more so than I could have otherwise because I have a chance for more airtime when we get to the actual class. Interesting stuff. So, and I'm I'm surprised to to a limited extent about the uh, the speed at which some of your students were able to adapt to the new demands yep, of technology, yeah. Zooming and all the rest of it. Would you just off the top of your head think that it would be the ad- the adaptability, the, oh, well, well, you just press this button and that happens. Kind of, would the younger the student these days, uh, the more likely the adaptability factor to be higher, the capability to go, oh, sure. It's likely in terms of the actual know-how. You know, I have two younger daughters. Both of them have been university students. My eldest daughter is in clinical graduate work at York right now. And, uh, you know, they're they're very capable. They've gone through all the social media ups and downs. But but the key to me is, 
you know, that's, that's when things are working well and things are expected. It's when things aren't working out the way that it should. And, you know, a lot of people come with their preconceived ideas about whether they can do it or not. And a big thing about adaptability is that sense of I can do it versus I'm not going to make this work, you know, so that's what we need to work on. And, uh, you know, it's fine as long as things work out according to plan. But but generally speaking, uh, they've had way more opportunities. And fortunately, they've had some school experiences before this where they've learned to adapt and to problem solve as part of the curriculum. But mm-hmm. not every student has that opportunity. Now, you talk about an adaptability is indeed the key to success through all of this. You also talk, though, about being a little surprised, perhaps at the outset, at how many extra students you had. You have a very special specific course that you teach to a usually fairly finite group of individuals and this time around discovered oops well look at the size of this year's class do you suspect gordon that that's happening across the board at all levels of the education system yes there's a lot of surprises and in the case of the sheer number of students we're no longer restricted by room requirements that are based on fire regulations Mm -hmm. because it's online so and, you know, when we get to fourth-year students, they need to access, access those courses, so they load it up. Uh, so there's all kinds of surprises along the way. And, of course, you also have to be sensitive to the individual circumstances of students, uh, uh, you know, except when they're telling you what kind of difficulties they might be having. They might have an ill family member and all the other things that people are coping with mm-hmm. that are just ratcheted up as a result of the pandemic and those restrictions. So... It helps, it helps to see them as an individual and to recognize that they have unique needs that, that are not shared necessarily by other students. Dr. Flett, could you take a second and explain to our West Coast audience a couple of yeah. things here? Because you talk about adaptability, and you as a yeah. psychologist say it's not just about resilience. Students yeah. should be encouraged to be adaptable to uncertainty. And and, yeah. and most people will go well. Of course they should. Yeah. But this course, is this, yeah. this is but this this Gordon is the same crowd that a lot of, yeah. of observers from the outside look at with their safe spaces and special yeah. rooms and hypersensitive this that and the other <laughs> yeah. thing. Going right. wait a second, how 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 can these snowflakes be encouraged to be adaptable <laughs> to uncertainty? They're all terrified yeah. of life. So well, square the circle yeah, for us. Sometimes there might be good reasons to be terrified, but. I got to say, you know, what you're saying at the beginning there reminds me of my first week at university when I was a student and I came home and my mother would say, well, you know, I was living at home at the time and she says, what did you learn today? And I would tell her and she goes, you had to go to university to hear about (laughs) that. You just need to sit here and I could, I could tell you, but the thing about it and, and the key thing you mentioned is that adaptability is not the same as resilience. There's all kinds of focus in the schools on promoting resilience, but there's not that much emphasis on promoting adaptability. And uh, a lot of people think that they're adaptable. So, you know, younger students might think, oh, yeah, I can handle this, and then find out that maybe they weren't so adaptable after all. So there's a lot of reckoning that comes along with things like the pandemic. And, you know, so, but the thing about, about adaptability is that resilience is based on the ability to bounce back. But here we're talking about new and uncertain things. And people may not have had a lot of new and uncertain things where they get to practice. So they need, you know, practice and flexible problem solving, alternative ways of thinking about it. You know, adaptability can be looked at in terms of being able or willing to change your behavior when it's not working in a situation. But also your thinking is key too, you know. 
Uh, if the all or none approach isn't working, you might need to find a way to, to change a little bit of something rather than seeing things in such broad sweeping ways. We are delighted to have Dr. Gordon Flett with us, a very patient professor of psychology at York University, the Canada Research Chair in Personality and Health at York as well, uh, who is a, a part of a team that has released a study about online learning. And uh, Dr. Flett, who teaches teachers as well as students, is talking about adaptability being the key to success for students in the online environment. And and another thing that Dr. Flett, we haven't talked about that you mentioned frequently in your study is the whole business of people mattering. It's 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 all about, I mean, uh, to be encouraged to be adaptable uh, is is one thing and and you can you can encourage those skills in individuals, but you can also make them more adaptable human beings by making them feel like they matter. And that's key, isn't it? Yeah, I think it may be one of the most key things. And for certain people, it is the most key thing. You know, you need to know that you are, if you're matter, you know, you're somebody who you feel important to others. They let you know uh, you may have a key role in their life and vice versa, where you're, you know, you give value to others and they give it to you. And I've seen it transform the lives of students. And, you know, in my book on the psychology of mattering, I talk about this in terms of celebrities uh, people who have talked about how that one key caring person who let them know that they matter mm-hmm. really changed their lives. Oprah Winfrey is an example of this and her second grade or fourth grade teacher who gave her a role and helped her cope with the abuse that she had dealt with. Um, and there's all kinds of stories. So when you're talking about mattering, you can think back to that one caring teacher, for instance, or other caring teachers who made you feel special and important. And, and what I've found is that it does transform into so many other positive feelings. You're more optimistic, you're feeling better about yourself, and and it's key to recognize that mattering is related to but separate from belonging. You can feel that you're part of a group, but you're anonymous or invisible within the group. So in my class, for instance, I have 30 students lined up there. They they all know they're there. I know they're there, but they're going to need to also feel that they're valued and seen right. and heard um, as, in a way that will give them, you know, the ability, especially to withstand interpersonal setbacks and challenges where somebody might mistreat you and you can say, well, you know, the people who really know me know that, that I matter and care about me. Indeed. So, Gordon, talk to us a little. A lot of educators already just wide awake now at, the, yeah. at, at this because you're, you're talking right to them. And so yes. in the difficult format of the online classroom, how does one, the teacher, you in this case, what, what yeah. are the tricks and techniques that you use in order to make those invisible people out there in your right. virtual classroom feel individually that they matter? Yeah, well, some of it is making them have opportunities, giving them the opportunity to have a sense of voice through discussion so that they get to express their opinion. If there's something in your class that you can go one way or the other, you let them vote on it, for instance. Sure. Um, being sensitive to them if they contact you individually so you can be quite aware of what's going on with them and, and talking about their unique individual challenges. I learned a long time ago it's very important for university students to not get the message that, well, everybody's, a, you know, stu- these are what students are about. 
you need to recognize that, that they're very different with different backgrounds mm-hmm. and experiences. And then there's some really key messages that you need to convey. Um, and you say about teaching teachers as well. This applies to teachers as well in terms of what they can learn for themselves. You know, the, the optimistic message that flexibility and persistence will pay off. You need to really emphasize that if you're not getting it now, you do have the capability of getting it and you can change. Uh, it's like Red Green used to have the man slogan where I can change if I have to. Right, right. Well, that's a key thing to really believe. Um, and I really think it's important as well to normalize feelings when people aren't feeling great about themselves, lonely and burned out with the pandemic or anxious and depressed. They need to realize that the way they're feeling is very much shared because uh, everybody's feeling it to some degree, whether people admit it or not, and hide behind, you know, a false front. So know that everybody else is feeling that way and convey that. And it's uh, you know, when a instructor talks about how they're feeling, that normalizes the, the experience for students. And and if I'm talking to other teachers or professors about this. They're going, hey, you know, this, and that also helps then with the connection and the, the sense of relatedness that ups the ante in terms of the chance to really show somebody that they matter. Exactly. Yeah, and and um, uh, again, and I don't want to get political on you at all, but as uh, no, 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 no. It, this is this is a money question, actually, Gordon, yeah, because yeah, at yeah. some universities, I'm not sure what the story is at York, but there are some yeah. Canadian post-secondary institutions this year who have increased their tuition schedules, who yes. who, who have upped their fees, and a yes, lot and, true, and a lot yeah. of students and their parents are going. Wait a second, they're not getting yeah. the same kind of college experience I had, and certainly you had, yeah. uh, and, and yet they want more for it. And I appreciate That's that right. the technology is expensive, etc. But what do you say to people who are going? Why would why on earth would I be expected to pay more for essentially less? What I would say to them is, indeed, you know, you're valid to be feeling that way. And then it's incumbent on colleges and universities, but also you know, high schools and middle schools and elementary schools to try, try to provide more of a payoff. And some of that is not just in terms of book learning. It's the coping with life element uh-huh. that, that I've been talking mm-hmm. about. And I've said this for years, actually, in my former life, and this accounted for the hair loss I'm now experiencing, <laughs> is that I was, I was associate dean uh, in our faculty of health not because I ever wanted to be, but one of my mentors became our dean, and I saw a chance to work with him and, and to develop a new faculty of health. And at our regular meetings, I would continue to emphasize that, you know, at York and the faculty of health, we have over 10,000 students. It's a massive. It's bigger than some colleges and universities. Sure. And we really have to work hard at finding ways to make students feel unique and that they matter. And, and you know, we would have great discussions about this. And they'd say, well, it's very impractical. But I'd say, well, but it's critical because the same issues that we're talking about from a financial perspective, which is, you know, whether, whether we're going to have higher student retention, how our recruitment's going to go, is re- revolving around those same issues sure. that people really need to feel that there is a connection and also developing alumni, you know, that people are going to want to continue to stay attached and, and to not contribute just financially, but in terms of their, their skill and expertise. And we're fortunate at York to have, you know, extensive alumni network. But uh, so I but I would get pushed back at times saying, well, this is not practical. And I say, students realize a little bit goes a long way, mm-hmm. that everybody's busy. So just a little bit of individual recognition and attention will, will make a huge difference and will get you the kind of student that, that you're hoping to have in, in abundance. 
So again, the the takeaway from the study, uh, students should be encouraged to be adaptable in uncertainty. And again, of course they yeah. should. But, uh, you know, it's it's a daunting challenge for many teachers, yeah. Gordon. Yes, no, it is. And, uh, you know, my, my wife is a retired teacher, so I know all about the stresses and strains uh, for teachers. And, and uh, there, too, you know, they, they need to know that they matter. So a little bit of consideration can go a long way in Ontario when you hear about situations where the same teacher has in her classroom or his classroom live students face-to-face, yet behind they're also supposed to be online at mm-hmm. the same time That's right. with restrictions about uh, not breaching the confidentiality and showing the home of the students online. <clears throat> it's, it's really a recipe for burnout. And you know, my other research with... Uh, my great colleague Paul Hewitt at UBC is on perfectionism, and the, the people who go into this with a perfectionistic attitude, which are many teachers, by the way, because they want to be the best they can be for everyone, uh, you know, that, that is a recipe right now for a severe uh, physical health problems, let alone men- mental health in terms of the stress and anxiety. And, uh, you know, here, here's a time when people really need to get the message. They need to be kind to themselves and compassionate, not hold themselves up to impossible expectations and standards because the key right now is to get through and just focus on the day-to-day and take it as it is and realize that everybody's feeling pretty much the same way. Interesting stuff. We are definitely all in this together, like it or not. <laughs> and, 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 and it's that it's that sense of, of collective determination, I think, ultimately, that's going to get us through it all, too. Gordon Flett, yep. thanks very much for this, sir. We appreciate your patience and waiting through the news to continue our conversation. And it was very worthwhile to have you on the program today. I'd love to talk well. to you again. Thanks very much. I would look forward to it. Dr. Gordon Flett from the Department of Psychology at York University, where he is the Canada Research Chair in Personality and Health. Brent Paulington is back with us. Mr. Paulington is with Express Employment Professionals in their Vancouver office, and they've released a new survey from the Harris Poll people uh, indicating this is about your next job and your social media profile. And according to this poll from Express Employment Professionals, nearly 7 in 10 Canadian hiring decision makers agree looking at a candidate's social media profile is indeed an effective way to screen applicants looking for work. Brent Paulington is back to talk more about it. Good morning, Brent. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about social media profile. You, you've talked about and you've hired people uh, and you are a hiring person and you deal with employers all the time. And in fact, through your agency, you refer individuals to employers. So how important in 2020 is that social media profile, Brent? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's super important for candidates to... Uh, I think really take a look at, uh, at what they're displaying to the public and depending on the seniority of the position they're applying for, uh, it could be something as simple for a more entry job of just making sure on their, on their, uh, you know, personal stuff like Facebook or, uh, Instagram, Twitter, those different things to right. make sure that they're not, uh, potentially displaying something that, uh, that they could be discriminated for without even knowing it. Um, or if you're getting into someone who's, you know, in a, who's applying for a more professional position, uh, using a tool like LinkedIn and really making sure that you've done a good job to um, 
you know, convey to a potential employer what skills and strengths you bring, you bring to the table. Well, it's interesting, you know, Brent, even during this election campaign, and it's, it's happened with individuals representing all parties, someone has found a comment or a tweet or an opinion on social media that an individual made could be several years ago that have derailed their election opportunities, again, under different political flags just over the past few weeks here in BC. So if that's the case for people running for public office, you would think uh, lining up and uh, setting yourself up for uh, an employment situation would be even more reason to take a look at everything you've done and, and, uh, you know, break out the, break out the detergent, scrub out that stuff. Do people, are people aware, Brent, of how important that process is as, as part of looking for a job? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think a lot of people um, don't realize how public some of their information is. Uh, and, and again, if they are on the hunt, I think it's, it's, it's definitely critical to go back and take a review or even, even do a, uh, a look through someone else's lenses, grab a, a friend's phone or, uh, you know, go through, through, uh, through someone else's channels to look up what your public profile looks like just to make sure that, uh, and again, like, uh, I think everybody's got choices to make. An example I was discussing with someone the other day was, uh, you know, someone who was, uh, who was a, uh, you know, Make America Great Again supporter, right. uh, maybe viewed by one employee or one employer as an absolutely, uh, you know, stellar candidate that aligns really well with their values, sure. whereas another employer might see them as an absolute, like, no-go, no-fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it really, de- you know, just really depends, uh, you know, how you want to portray your kind of online image to to employers and some things you you know you may feel really strongly about uh, but again any of that information uh, and I thought it was a great analogy gives a potential employer like a 3d snapshot of, of kind of who you are uh, if they've got your resume and then they're able to see some some additional information that that kind of gives insights into into things that aren't aren't apparent on a resume. Interesting stuff. So, Brett, let's flip the coin very quickly for a second. Suppose you decide, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had it with social media. I don't want any of that stuff from, you know, 10 years ago to come back and bite me when I least expect it or need it in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close all my accounts. I'm going to get out of Twitter and Instagram and all of just shutting down. I'm not going to have a social media profile. And that way, when I go looking for a job... There's nothing to find. Yeah, I, I personally don't think that would uh, that would hurt you. Uh, I don't believe uh, an employer would, uh, you know, be turned off by finding that someone doesn't have a social channel. The only, um, you know, thing I would caution someone on there is uh, with LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a tool that is absolutely uh, used as a positive tool by potential employers. And again, it depends on the type of position you're applying for, sure, right. uh, you know, we place lots of people in, in, in light industrial and trade type positions. And some of those roles absolutely will be considered and others, others it won't, but LinkedIn is just a, a really phenomenal tool. It's almost like your online kind of uh, publicly viewable resume. Uh, and so that would be the one where if you were currently employed and you didn't want to have any social, absolutely no need to have that. If you weren't employed and you were looking for work, uh, building a LinkedIn profile could be really, really beneficial to your job search. So that would be the key. That would be the door opener. If you were going to have one social media profile uh, just to be a player on the field, so to speak, LinkedIn would be the, the recommended uh, place to go. 
Yeah, and if we were even going that far, I mean, if you didn't have the other social channels and, and you wanted to create online visibility for potential employers, you could go as far as creating other channels as well and just keeping it very limited. And 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 I think, again, the big thing with that, you know, that analogy of the 3D snapshot, you could potentially share more information to help a potential employer. And again, not every employer, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not that everyone's going in and, and really scouring every social channel. Of it's course. Just, it is a possible step that an employer could take. And so if you wanted to create more of that, uh, you know, who I am awareness, then you could create a, you know, other social channels if you were looking to apply in the market. Uh, because again, we post lots of jobs on Facebook. I've sure. seen a lot of traction on Instagram for, for job posts. And so you could absolutely use those channels to your benefit. But again, like you said, you could absolutely remove yourself from those platforms uh, if you wanted to, to be preventative or or just ensure that that uh, there's nothing out there that, that could come back and bite you in the long run. Yeah, well, it's always good to have a pro like you uh, able to remind us of a few of the basics because an awful lot of people looking for work these days, empl- unemployment rates in most Canadian provinces in excess of 10%, BC no exception, Brent. So the, the, the takeaway from our chat this morning is, for goodness sake, if you're putting yourself out there into the marketplace looking for work, have a look at what the marketplace can see about you on your social media profile. Have a look at what you look like to the rest of the world and make adjustments if necessary, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> uh, any, uh, any tips this morning on uh, who's, who's hiring, Brent? Yeah, um, we've actually had uh, a couple of recent job orders coming over the last week. Uh, specifically in Vancouver, we've got a number of clients that are looking for uh, like entry-level labor, carpenters, helpers, carpenters. Uh, we've got a, uh, another construction company looking for estimators, project managers, so seeing lots of traction in the construction space, which is really great. Yeah, and wages uh, are pretty good in that uh, sector too, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, uh, one of the few industries I've found where the employers have continued to be willing to increase wages, uh, which is great. Definitely a demand for talent in that space. Good stuff. Brent Pollington from Express Employment Professionals here in Vancouver. If you didn't have an opportunity to catch all of the job information he had at the end of our chat, just go to the website and it's all there for you. And uh, Brent, uh, we appreciate your time and a, a, a timely reminder about our social media profiles this morning. Thanks very much, Brent. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is a welcome back kind of guest. Marty Weintraub is the national retail lead at Deloitte Canada here to talk to us about their new Deloitte holiday survey. Marty, welcome back. It's good to have you on the show again. Hey, it's great to be back. So the uh, the, the theme for the Deloitte holiday season, I believe it's the 35th survey that you've taken. Uh, this time around, COVID-19 isn't canceling the holidays, Marty, but it certainly will affect the holiday season ahead. Tell us what you're finding in the new survey. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's probably no surprise to you and your listeners that uh, this is going to be uh, what we call a special year. Uh, unfortunately, because of the, the pandemic, uh, we're going to see a, a pretty significant reduction in, in how much people are spending. Our study this year found that Canadians are going to spend uh, on average 18% less, which is about $1,400. Um, you know, interestingly, compared to our U.S. counterparts, they're only dropping their spend about 7%. So we're taking a bigger dip. Um, so it's obviously going to affect uh, the retail business in the country. Uh, I guess, you know, it's not surprising also that our outlook for the economy, when we ask Canadians how they feel about uh, the economy and their personal financial situation, 
you know, over half of consumers think the economy is going to get worse into 2020, mm. which, is, which is consistent with what people are saying, as well as they're just personally going to be worse off, therefore spend less. Yeah. So, uh, again, uh, would you say, though, in what, what would you say the mood of the country is, Marty? Uh, because, you know, uh, it, it's uh, you, you, we're, we're expecting subdued activity. And I think that's a, a kind word. Uh, but uh, what do you sense? What, what are people telling you about just how they're feeling about all of this? I mean, there is an anxiety level that is palpable in every corner of Canada. What does that uh, show you? How, how does that show up on a retail survey? Um, well, it actually, you know, comes through mainly through the, the outlook in, in finances and whatnot. But we do actually have a global anxiety index as well that we're tracking. Okay. Um, and interest, interestingly, I will tell you that Canada, the anxiety levels overall, they've been fairly, I guess, steady up until probably the last, you know, obviously four weeks or so as we've been in our in our second wave, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a little bit of uptick. But to be honest, the anxiety levels have been fairly constant. And that's probably because to some extent, we've just started to adjust our lives and our behaviors whether we like it or not, unfortunately, but but that has resulted in some tempering of, of the mood and anxiety. So do some of those adjustments, Marty, to keep the anxiety level at least in check, do some of those adjustments include, for example, a dramatic shift in shopping, for example, to online versus in person we've certainly seen uh, an enormous uptick in amazon business and i think there are probably other online retailers experiencing the same is that part of the package it sure is in fact 47 uh, percent of canadians said they've been shopping more online since the pandemic began again not surprising over half the country what's really interesting in this year's study Sterling, is that for the first time ever, um, Amazon was a powerhouse last year. They are the powerhouse this year. It's the first time ever that uh, Canadians, in fact, 66% of Canadians, or two-thirds, said they're going to use Amazon to find and buy their gifts over the physical store. Uh, the physical store is now about 50% of Canadians, and you know, last year that was 69 So it's a literal flip. So that's going to present an enormous challenge for all retailers that are fighting Amazon who basically are sitting on top of the hill right now. Interesting. So one of the things that's obvious is that any retailer, in order to be just a competitor, period, must have some kind of online presence. 100%. Not only do they have to have an online presence, but they also have to have the capabilities and the tools to engage online effectively with those customers. Marty Weintraub is back with us today. Mr. Weintraub is the national retail leader with Deloitte Canada, joining us from Toronto uh, to talk about their new holiday survey. It's the 35th survey that Deloitte has conducted at this time of year. And Marty, 2020, of course, uh, is going down in your survey and everyone else's as what you use, the word you use, the expression you used was uh, an exceptional year, a different year. Uh, And it's also going to be a little less, well, flush year. Talk to us about anticipated individual Christmas spending for 2020. Yeah, so, you know, I guess we talked about uh, the reduction of 18%. By the way, I forgot to mention when we were chatting earlier, there is a pronounced difference in the West, which will be of interest to you and your listeners, uh, about 25% reduction uh, coming out of the West, actually. So a more dramatic fall for retailers operating there. But when we looked at the decomposition of that, you know, $1,400 where it's going to go, um, the biggest reductions we're seeing are going to come out of no surprise, you know, travel, entertainment, and alcohol, um, because we're going to see a lot fewer gatherings. And where there are gatherings, there'll be fewer mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to see sort of the spending pullback there. 
Um, the bulk of the rest of the, the gift giving is going to be, you know, about $500 and that's going to be, you know, gifts and gift cards. That's actually down only about eight or 10%. So it's down, but like I said, the big pullback is going to be on the entertaining, the food and the travel. Yeah, especially the travel part. Uh, the other thing that I wanted, just, just as a comment, because you're, you're not a retailer, you're, you're, your firm uh, is not in the retail business and yet you have so many clients who are. I'm curious what uh, your reaction was earlier this week Marty, when you learned about the collapse uh, of Le Chateau, which has been a very popular brand in this country for a very long time. What is 125 stores about to be gone? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, we've been seeing, and to no surprise, since earlier this year, I mean, if a retailer, you know, came out of last holiday season um, with, you know, some some weakness, uh, and this would apply to more than just that one in one company, sure. then going into the pandemic, obviously, was going to be terribly challenging. The interesting thing about the retailers we've seen start filing for bankruptcy protection or restructuring or, or whatever the, the mechanism is. It's disproportionate, right? So if a retailer is in the, the soft goods, what we call the apparel business, the shoe business, things that are, you know, more discretionary mm-hmm. versus more essential, definitely more pressure. Um, and of course, uh, you know, like I said, we're all working at home right now. And so I know myself, I spend a lot less on clothing and footwear and all that because I just don't need it. Sure. So that just, you know, adds pressure upon pressure. So it's really not that surprising. Uh, we've talked about the incredible success that uh, Amazon is enjoying and the switcheroo that you mentioned before the the uh, the uh, spending uh, the online spending versus in-store spending typically up until this year in-store spending has dominated but because of course the pandemic being the ultimate decision maker this year it's likely that online spending will considerably exceed in-store spending Marty uh, and uh, that uh, again we, we we're talking about uh, the you're talking about the success or lack of it of local Canadian retail businesses. We had Laura Jones from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on with us last weekend, Marty, talking about how as many of us as possible should think about those small local businesses when we do our Christmas shopping this year, because even though it may represent a slightly larger cost, some of these businesses really are on the bubble. What can you tell us? from your independent position at Deloitte with respect to retailers across Canada and the kind of crunch many of them find themselves in with Christmas 2020 being a make-it-or-break-it situation for real. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we've had a lot of conversations with, you know, with clients, both of local and non-local backgrounds. And, and what we are seeing from from Canadians is the desire to support local businesses, but I would say up until a certain point, right? I think there's a willingness to pay a slight premium, yeah. but you know, m- m- not much more than that, because again, unfortunately, we have that pressure on the pocketbook. So I would say about 40% of Canadians um, have told us that if they had the opportunity to buy from a local brand or an item that was quote unquote locally sourced, mm-hmm. even if it costed a little bit more, they would do so. Um, that's actually roughly been the same since early April. We started tracking what we call the socially conscious shopper. Um, so that is that is maintaining. So if I were a small, locally, you know, independently owned business, I'd be obviously promoting as much as I can uh, that fact. But of course, there's a challenge. They don't have the same budgets that some of the big national and foreign chains had. So it's going to be that sort of fine line between paying a little bit more to support because we want to um, and because we're Canadians and that's just our values. Yeah. But then again, we still want deals. 
So it's interesting, and I was going. I'm glad you brought up this socially conscious shopper because, again, there is an individual who is concerned about uh, the source, the origins of the products he or she is buying, and uh, they are quite quite insistent on uh, ethically sourced uh, products and so on. And uh, even in a time of uh, economic pinching, that individual, that type of shopper, is still very picky and very active, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you know, what's interesting, too, and we were talking just a few moments ago about, you know, how the money, that $1,400 holiday budget is being allocated. Mm-hmm. The one thing that sort of relates to what you're talking about, there's one uh, very brightly shining star in that, which is charitable giving, which we do include as sort of a category within holiday spend. That category is, has actually increased year over year by 86%. So about $160 on average by Canadians will be given to charities this holiday season, which, like I said, is a materially higher amount versus last year. And I think that does tie to not just to social consciousness, not just supporting local brands, but just supporting our community in general. That's interesting because I'm, I'm looking at your survey now. And it says two in five holiday shoppers expend to spend, expect to spend less year over year, largely because of concerns about the economy. Quite legit. And at the same time, and almost in the same breath, you're saying that, and yet... Despite the fact that we're pulling ourselves back in quite deliberately due to economic concerns, we're also very aware of people who are less fortunate than we are. And at a time of, well, a lot of high unemployment and so on, it's, uh, we're, we're still being Canadians about it, aren't we, Marty? Exactly, exactly. That's one of the things I'm most proud of, and hopefully we all are as, as Canadians, is exactly that. And we do not see that happening in some other geographies, uh, for example, like in the U.S., that is... Uh, you know, pretty much unique to us. Interesting stuff. Uh, you can find the survey online, friends, at Deloitte.com. It's the 35th annual uh, holiday survey. Uh, Marty, uh, just uh, to summarize it all, uh, uh, there is a sense of optimism, but it's very guarded this year. How's that? Yeah, I mean, again, everyone's, I would say it's like cautiously optimistic that we'll get through this okay. You know, I think the big thing here, uh, as no surprise, is the longer we're in this pandemic, the more sort of uneasy we're all going to continue to feel. Like, I, like before I said earlier, the anxiety levels are sort of steady right now because we're sort of very hopeful and cautiously optimistic. The more brighter side heading into January. But if we don't get the, you know, the pandemic under control and that wave two spikes up, it's going to go in the reverse. So it really depends on what happens over the next probably two, three months. Indeed it does. Marty, we appreciate your time. It's always great to have you on the program. You're, you're a great guy to talk to, and you certainly know all your stuff. So uh, I, read, I commend the survey to our listeners. It's at Deloitte.com. Marty Weintraub, National Retail Later for Deloitte, joining us from Toronto. Uh, great to have you back, Marty. Thanks so much for joining us again. Mario Canseco is on the line. Mr. Canseco is the big guy at Research Company, and we talk fairly regularly. Good morning, Mario. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here. Oh, it's good to have you with us. And on a day when we're actually not allowed to talk politics, what a relief. <laughs> I know. I think we needed that. I think Holy we needed that. Cow, Especially please. with Saskatchewan coming up on Monday and then the U.S. election uh, a week from Tuesday. So, yeah, it's a nice break. Absolutely right. And, and we could all use that. Of course, there's no shortage of a coverage of the B.C. election beginning a little later on today right here on CKNW. I managed to get to mangle, in fact, the most recent results of your survey regarding electric vehicles. You and I touched on this a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and you were very quick to point out that the big, the big challenge for Canadians to wrap their heads around the idea of owning an electric 
vehicle is simply the ability to be able to charge said vehicle. What I got mangled this morning, Mario, was my misinterpretation of your survey headline. I was under the impression Canadians were more uh, likely to express a preference to own an electric car than Americans. And as it turns out, your findings are exactly the opposite. Tell us more. Well, we do see a larger appetite from Americans to switch their current uh, non-electric vehicle into an electric vehicle. We wanted to talk to people who are about to make that decision soon. And there's 51% of American respondents who have a vehicle that is not electric uh, who are saying, I think the next one will be electric. But it's only 42% in Canada. So there's definitely a situation there where the level of uh, appetite from uh, those who may buy an electric vehicle in the future is higher in the U.S. than it is in Canada. So more Americans are predisposed at this point to buying uh, an electric vehicle. Is Now, you're, you're talking about people who, who don't own one yet, but whose next vehicle is likely to be an electric vehicle. Higher numbers in the States than in Canada. What were the reasons that, uh, that you heard that were both for and against? Well, one of the things that we wanted to check is uh, what are the things that might make it less likely for you to purchase an electric vehicle? And the number one issue in Canada is price. 61% of Canadians who say right now it's too expensive to buy an electric vehicle compared to non-electric ones. Mm -hmm. Now, there are specific situations that can be uh, certainly uh, used by consumers who are thinking about making these decisions. There are certain rebates uh, that come with it. Uh, but I would say that we're in a situation similar to the one we had in the 1990s with DVDs. A lot of people who said, I don't want to buy DVDs, I'll keep all my VHS tapes. And as it started to become a little bit cheaper, people make, made that change. Yeah, but Mario, the other thing, the other part of that government-subsidized uh, program, basically the government is trying to, shall we say, encourage rather than bribe its citizens into thinking and buying electric vehicles. If, for example, and I don't know the numbers these days because they have fluctuated, but let's just suppose the feds offer $5,000 and your province offers $5,000 if you purchase an EE vehicle. So why wouldn't the person selling electric vehicles jack the price up by the extra $10,000 they know you're going to get for nothing? Well, I think it's a great question. You know, it's, it's an issue that has been plaguing the industry for a while because it's been tough for residents to make this call. Uh, one of the things that we notice as well is a situation where uh, the numbers are higher actually with men who tend to be more about cars than, than women in a way. Uh, but it's not a situation that is uh, certainly easy. I think there's a lot of Canadians who are dreaming about the high-end electric vehicles mm -hmm. and maybe not looking at some of the cheaper options that are out there. Interesting stuff. Uh, is there any distinction made? Did you go to the area of driverless vehicles versus those that, you know, we we would typically drive ourselves? Is there any appetite at all? Or did you even question uh, interest in driverless electric vehicles? Uh, we didn't ask about that directly this time around. Uh, it's an interesting challenge as well. I mean, we've seen a little bit of a false start when it comes to that particular industry. Uh, but it's it's interesting in the sense that uh, it's a change that is going to take a little bit longer than, than many people expect. Oh, yeah. And, you know, going back 20 years, you know, there were no discussions about electric vehicles. There were documentaries about the death of the electric car, for instance. And now we're heading into a situation where we see them more and more. Uh, but it's uh, definitely uh, an issue that that, that uh, takes time. And the other thing that is uh, really bothering Canadians, particularly Western Canadians, is 
the fear that they'll become stranded, that they'll run out of battery in a road and they won't be able to, to do anything about it, especially if you're somebody who is driving certainly larger distances. Well, and that's the thing. That's that's the one reality that we have in Canada. People come to our, to, to this country from Europe, for example, and, and you'll say things like, well, we're going to Calgary for the weekend. Oh, how are you going to get there? We're going to drive. But it's eight, <laughs> o- it's eight hours. Eight hours in Europe will dr- take you through four or five different countries. I mean, it, our concept of distance and space is so different from other parts of the world where things are a lot more crowded. So one thing the Canadians do, Mario, a lot is drive huge distances. So, yes, being concerned about being stranded is pretty real for a lot of us. It's definitely there. I think it's a situation that can be dealt with, uh, with two things. One is information. I think there's definitely a lot of fear that you don't know where the next uh, station would be for you to charge your car. Right. The other one is infrastructure. You know, if you want people to adopt to this, uh, then you need to figure out a way to have more charging stations in other places. Now, this isn't something that is uh, not uh, actually present in urban areas. You know, we have a situation where if you get an electric vehicle and you live in a strata situation, for instance, uh, the infrastructure to charge the car is going to be more expensive. And there's been... Uh, certainly decisions in specific strata councils where they say, no, we're not going to pay for this infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So you have a vehicle that you can't charge because it's not as simple as charging a VCR or a toaster oven. Well, exactly. And of course, it, it's not cost free. I mean, the fact that you're not buying gas for your vehicle doesn't mean that you're you're spending some uh, fuel money uh, on keeping the thing on the road. It's just being allocated to a different source. Uh, and uh, in the new buildings, uh, a lot of them, of course, are being built now with all of those charging stations into individual parking spots but it's the retrofitting and all the rest of it mario that would be a concern for quite a few people definitely i think it's it's definitely one of the things that we see here price is the number one issue uh, but we also see this idea that you know you don't want to get stranded or you might have a difficulty finding a place to charge your car uh, one thing that was quite curious is uh, we have 14 percent of canadians who say that they uh, are worried about the feel of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it's something that climbs higher in Alberta. Maybe they like muscle cars and they're saying, yeah, I'm not going to get rid of my Mustang unless my electric vehicle is uh, just as noisy. But, you know, the, the, there's an e-Mustang and my goodness, there's even an e-Hummer as of uh, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so the appetite's got to be there if these companies are going in that direction. Mario, thanks for this. A, a breath of fresh air on a, on a political, in the middle of a, blit, a political blizzard uh, on Election Day morning. Great to talk to you again. We'll do this again. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.